You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Today, you guys are going to be really excited about this. Today, we are going to be talking about how to find true happiness. Uh, and this is, there we go, uh, this is not a, a self-help sermon, uh, but this is a pretty big deal in our culture, right? I mean, people are always trying to look for that magic, that what's that thing that's going to bring me true happiness that I don't have in my life? Uh, this week, I got on my computer and I, and I Googled the phrase, how to find true happiness, just to see kind of what would pop up. And I found 42 million results. And, uh, and so I did, a little, I did a little searching through there, and tons of books, right, tons of blogs. I mean, you can go into any library, and there's this whole section in there about how to find your true happiness, how to find uh, true potential, where to find happiness in, in, in life. Uh, as I searched, I even found a happy app that you can download on your phone, which uh, checks your happiness. Uh, I found a happy quiz on Facebook that I accidentally signed up for, and now I can't figure out how to get it to go away. Um, I found conferences that you can go to, all about being happy, uh, even resorts that you can go to that focus on bringing, uh, bringing true happiness. Um, and uh, I came across this article that I thought was really interesting because it gave, it gave me, I think, a pretty good perspective of, of how the world sometimes believes that we should find happiness. And this is off of the Huffington Post. Uh, and the title is Where to Find Happiness. Uh, and it says, try this. I set a timer for 10 minutes and go for a very slow walk. Letting your gaze wander. Look for things you like in the environment. When you find something you like, pause and appreciate it for longer than you otherwise would. Continue on looking for the positive. What do you notice? This is an exercise from a class I took in mindfulness meditation. Our teacher talked about the brain's negativity basis. We are wired to look for the negative because from an evolutionary perspective, those who did were more likely to survive. If you assume there's a tiger hiding behind the bush over there, but there's not, the consequences are minimal. If you assume there is not a tiger and there is, you're toast. (laughs) We're much quicker to see and to remember the negative in any situation. Excessively focusing on negative thoughts, however, lead to a bad mood and a low opinion of our lives and and, and our relationships. If we notice and appreciate the positive things in our lives, we are happier but it's something we need to practice. And in the article, she goes on to actually practice this exercise, walking around and, and, uh, and, and noticing things. So uh, the, the writer of this article obviously believes that happiness is found in a change of perspective, right? But in reality, true happiness is actually found in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus, in his first public address uh, to his people, and in essence... He talks about happiness. He gathers all of his disciples together and he sits down and says, blessed, which translates happy. So if, if, uh, if and, and this would make sense, if, if this is Jesus's first public address to his followers of his kingdom, he's come, the new king is here, he sits down and now he begins to teach about his kingdom and what it means to live inside of that kingdom. So that's what we're going to be reading today in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you guys, if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew 5. Uh, if you don't, you can check it out up here on the screens. And we're all going to stand together. We're going to read Matthew 5, uh, 1 through 12. And can we have more house lights? It seems just really dark in here, so just crank them all the way up. Um, Matthew 5, starting in, in verse 1. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain 
And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you uh, just wanting to sit under your word. Uh, God, as you sat down uh, on, on the mount and you spoke to the people, uh, we believe that you're still speaking today to us, that these words are, are true and, and applicable to us today and in our lives and, and where we're at. And uh, so, Father, we want to learn about your kingdom and what it means uh, to live inside of it. But we also realize to understand this, uh, takes a work that you do. It's, it's beyond human comprehension. Romans says that it's foolishness to those who, who, uh, who, uh, who, don't, who don't believe. And so, God, we need you to open up our hearts to, to see uh, what your kingdom is truly all about. And then we need to be, uh, have our lives reprioritized around your purposes and your ways uh, because we're, we're broken, God, and we, just, we need you, Father. So speak to us today in this place as your people. I ask us in your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So as we can see in the text, uh, we left off last week with Jesus beginning his ministry and great crowds came to him uh, in, in, uh, in Galilee and, and he began to minister to them, teaching uh, good news that the kingdom had come and he was healing them of all their different types of diseases. Well, where the text picks up today, uh, Jesus has been ministering to these crowds and so he goes up on a mountain <coughs> to get away from the crowds and, uh, and he sits down like a rabbi would He's with his followers, with his disciples, and he begins to teach them about his kingdom. Now, for an inaugural speech, this is not what we would expect. And I don't think it's what they expected e- either. Um, and it's because happiness in Jesus' kingdom is not what we would think happiness is today, Right? And if, if we, and let's be honest, when we hear some of these things that Jesus says, it sounds kind of foolish, doesn't it? Like, that's not really going to work. The meek? You want me to be meek? That's not how this world, this world operates. So, so why is that? Why, when we read the Beatitudes, or actually the entire Sermon on the Mount, why does it not really jive with our worldview and the way that we think things should be? The reason is because we live in an upside-down world. So this is a concept that we've been talking about in relational elder training, and we're going to continue talking about it tonight with the, with the guys that come. So God created a right-side-up world, right? The right world. It was called Eden. Well, when sin entered into the world, the world became upside-down. Wally's smiling because he's read this. The world became upside-down. Sin, it distorted every fabric of God's creation, So the problem with us and the reason that we are challenged when we read the Bible is that we have lived in this upside down world for so long that it's become normal to us. And uh, and it's hard for us to conceive of it any other way. And let's let's use this as an example. Imagine uh, we took your house and we flipped it upside down. 
So when you walked into the house, you had to step over the door, step over the threshold to the door. When you were walking around, there was light fixtures on the floor, and you had to watch out for the light fixtures. And, and, this is this, and you, you lived in this house. It would be pretty odd at first, wouldn't it, living in an upside-down house? Now, fast forward 50 years later, your kids have been raised in this home. You've been doing this for 50 years. Do you think it would become normal to you to live in an upside-down house? Well, well sure, that's, that's the way that we operate. That's the way that we operate. We would think that it's always been this way. And the point is that when we live in an upside-down situation long enough, What's upside down becomes right side up. So then Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, and he knows what the real right side up is. He knows how the world is supposed to be, and he tells us that we're living in an upside down world. And we think that Jesus is crazy, right? Because a right side up message in an upside down world seems crazy and even foolish. Until we can come to terms with what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's not true, what's right side up and what's upside down, we will mistake what is wrong for what is right. So Jesus, he's going to lay out for us the right way in which his followers are to live inside of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, which starts with the Beatitudes. But before we just jump into the Beatitudes, there's a few things that we need to kind of get straight so that we can properly understand them. Each beatitude in Matthew 5 starts with the phrase blessed. Now blessed in its most literal translation does mean happy. Although at the beginning of the message I was being really facetious. Uh, To us and to the writer of that article, happiness is a state of mind, right? It's a a feeling that, that you get. But to Jesus, when he uses the word blessed, he's calling his disciples blessed. And he's declaring them happy as a spiritual state in which God views them. Okay? So that's what blessed is. It's a spiritual state. It's not a feeling. It has more to do with the way that we live our lives, not just the way that that we feel. The second thing we need to understand about the Beatitudes is in those lists of the, the poor of spirit, the merciful, these are not meant to be groups of people, but rather they describe characteristics of a follower of Christ. So when he talks about the poor in the first Beatitude, He's not talking about the physically poor in all the world. He's not saying the poor in the world will be taken care of by God because he will provide for them. But instead, he is, he is saying they are poor in a spiritual state. And, 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 uh, and that's why it says they, he is, they are poor in spirit, right? Jesus could have said the poor shall inherit, blessed are the poor and, and they shall inherit the kingdom of God. But he says blessed are the poor in spirit. Because it's a spiritual state in which you find yourself. So that's another factor that's important to understand as we walk through them. The third thing we need to understand is that with every blessing, with every characteristic, there is a privilege that's associated with it. So if you are poor in spirit, then there's something that you will receive. It's a privilege that comes along with being poor poor in spirit. Now, follow me here. Some of these privileges are present in the fact that you receive them right there as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, right? When you look at the privileges, they're immediate. But some of the privileges are also future. They're pointing toward heaven and what we'll receive in heaven. And some of the Beatitudes, most of them actually are both. They have a present day application that you receive from God right now, and they have a future 
application that we will receive from Jesus Christ. You say, well, how can you say that, buddy? Because some of them, they don't say that. You know, some of them say, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And it would seem like an immediate satisfaction if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, one of the, one of the things that, that we need to, when we read the Bible, is we can see these different literary devices being used. They were written by men who chose certain words and chose to write in a certain way. If you'll notice, the first beatitude ends with, will inherit the kingdom of God, right? And the last beatitude ends with, and they will inherit the kingdom of God. So when you read the Bible and you see repeating phrases like that at the beginning and the end of a paragraph, it was done on purpose. That, that writer, Matthew, is using a, a, a literary device called inclusio. And he's putting a statement at the beginning and the end. And basically that means that everything that comes in between these two things applies to what's at the beginning and what's at the end. So that's the way that we can say these are present, but they're also future. So I know this is, this is a lot of information, but we can't just jump into them until we understand exactly what the writer's trying to do. The fourth thing that we need to understand is that... Uh, the half of these beatitudes involve our relationship with God, the first four actually, and half of them involve more of our relationship with one another inside of the church and also in the way that we interact in our world. And there's a little bit of, of overlap. So you guys got all that? Make sense? Okay. Last thing, and then we're actually going to jump into the beatitudes. Uh, one of the things that, is, that we really struggle with when we read the beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, we would say, this is an impossible standard. Right? There's no way I'm actually going to be able to do those. So isn't the Beatitudes just meant to show me my inability to save myself? Right? I mean, it's, it's easy to read the Beatitudes. I was taught the Sermon on the Mount uh, as this is just something you'll never be able to do, but isn't God awesome because He can do it. So aren't they just supposed to show us our, our inability? We're not actually supposed to do these things. Um, you know, and let's be honest, when you look at most Christians' lives, the Beatitudes aren't very evident, are they? Because it's opposite to our nature and it's opposite to the way we, way we think. So, so here's the question. Do the, is the point of the Beatitudes just to show us our need for grace? Yes on one hand and no on the other hand. So when we read the Beatitudes, we are meant to see our inability to fulfill on our own merit the Beatitudes, the, much like the whole Sermon on the Mount is going to operate in this way because Jesus is going to set some really high standards for, for his people in, in the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount operates much like the law in the Old Testament did in showing the people their inability to save themselves through perfect obedience to the law while still giving them a means by which they can call themselves the people of God. So when we're reading the Bible and we see something in the Bible that seems impossible for us to do, but it's required to enter into, our, into the kingdom of God, right? So when we see the Bible, it seems impossible for us to do, but it's required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Then what we're to do is to run to Christ and submit ourselves recognizing our inability, right? I can't do that, God. Christ then, who, Christ then justifies us because he did all these things perfectly. So we come, to Christ, we come to God and say, I can never be merciful the way that you were merciful. But that's, required, right? It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you're not merciful, then you don't receive mercy. And we say, God, how can I ever do mercy in the way that you are merciful? And Jesus says, you can't, but I did it. And what I did, I'm going to place on top of you. I'm going to justify you, right? 
so that now when God looks at you, he sees me, he sees you being perfectly merciful. And we're like, oh, thank you, God. But it doesn't just leave us there, right? It doesn't stop there. Christ, kind of follow me here, Christ then having justified us, sends us back to the scriptures. It sends us back to the law or this new law, and it shows us how to please God. So the entire Sermon on the Mount functions in the same way because we read it and we say, I can never do that. It's impossible because it describes the type of people that reborn Christians are supposed to be. And God is continually doing a work in the lives of his followers, right? He's continually making us like Jesus. We call this process sanctification. And I want you guys to know that, and I really wrestled with this this week because I've never really understood the Beatitudes, to be honest with you. I've said that just seems crazy, you know? And it's because just because something seems difficult does not mean that it's impossible. And we're not going to be able to do these things perfectly. There's just no way. But there's still characteristics of what it looks like to be the follower of God. And with His Spirit living inside of us, we can learn what it means to live inside of His kingdom. And we can see these characteristics begin to develop in our lives. So have hope, uh, church. I want you to know that God can and will do these things in us. So that was a little bit of of, uh, laying the foundation for the Beatitudes. Now we can actually get into them and try to figure out exactly what Jesus is saying. So, what, like I said, with every one of these, uh, we're going to see, a, we're gonna see a, 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 they're going to start out with, with blessed or, or happy. Uh, and it's going to be the, the same all the way down. And then Jesus is going to have a, a characteristic that he's going to lay out. And then he's going to talk about a privilege that comes along. Privilege that comes along with these characteristics. So uh, I'm going to try to write them down. So the first one is, is, is poor in spirit. So happy are you when you are poor, poor in spirit, right? Now to be poor in spirit does not mean to be physically poor. That was the whole in spirit part. But it means to be spiritually bankrupt or spiritually in poverty or impoverished. So we know that the physically poor are humbly dependent on God to provide for them, right? If we are spiritually poor in spirit, then it means that we are humbly dependent on God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, right? We are sinners and we are humbly dependent on God and His holiness. We do not deserve righteousness, We do not deserve entrance into his family. We need his mercy. And God does that. He extends his mercy to us. Now, we would know that that mercy is extended through repentance. When we come broken before God, on our knees before him. And the reason that this is the first beatitude, and there's a reason that they're in this order, and they kind of build off of one another, is because we enter into the kingdom of God being poor in spirit and being repentant This is the exact opposite of what we saw the Pharisees do when they came to John to be baptized. Remember that? They had nothing to repent of. And God and and John's like, you brood of vipers. You know, the wrath is coming for you. We as God's followers enter into his kingdom through repentance, right? Through being poor in our spirit, understanding that he has something that we need that we cannot provide for ourselves. And the kingdom, right? The privilege here is actually entering into the kingdom of God both in this life and in the one to come. 
the, the kingdom is only entered into by those who recognize their need, their, their sin, and their need of God's free gift through salvation. So if you're spiritually bankrupt, God bails you out, right? I mean, you come to the end and say, I'm, I can't do it. And God says, okay, I'm going to come and give you something that you don't deserve, right? That's the essence of a bailout, right? As we would all know. And God, God comes to us. That's how, that's how we're supposed to view ourselves. It's a, it's a get out of jail free card. Man, I deserve wrath, but instead I get grace. So Jesus says, hey, you want to be a part of my kingdom? Be poor in spirit, right? That's the first one. Beatitude number two. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. So characteristic is, is mourning. Right? Uh, to mourn, uh, and this is a really interesting translation. It's, it basically can be translated, um, happy are the unhappy, which I thought was kind of funny. You guys don't. Um, uh, mourning, uh, mourning is to display repentance in your life and not just with your words, right? It's a physical characteristic that you take on. It's one thing for us to be spiritually poor. It's another thing to acknowledge it, right? And to acknowledge it with your actions. It's, a, it's another thing to grieve and to mourn over this brokenness that we have inside of us. Uh, Luke even says in the Beatitudes that in his recording of what Jesus said, Jesus, after he gives this Beatitude, he says, woe to you who laugh now. Now, Jesus isn't just being a downer. But the Christian life is not all about, hey, everything's great, we're fine. Fake smiles and easy little one-liners. I've been to those churches. When you look at the life of Jesus, man, he wept, didn't he? He wept over the sin of others. He wept over the bitter consequences of judgment and of death. He wept over the city that rejected him. And we too should weep over the injustice and the evil that is present inside of us and is also present inside of this world. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? I'm all about making much of grace, but I think we also need to recognize the depravity of mankind. So there's an analogy that I'll draw over here that's been really helpful for me to to understand this. Um, this is me. And the hair. Um, so my understanding of who God is depends on two, two things. On one side is my understanding of, of grace, of God's, uh, of God's grace. And then on the other side is my understanding of, of sin and, uh, and depravity. So, as a, as a follower of, of Jesus, if all I ever talk about is God's grace, like I, I think God's grace is awesome, then this is how big the cross is to me, right? The more I talk about God's grace, the bigger the cross gets. It's awesome. Now, if I only talk about sin and depravity and how worthless I am, <laughs> this is how big the cross is, Right? And I keep talking about depravity and I keep my understanding of my sinfulness grows and Jesus becomes bigger in my mind. But when I understand the greatness of God's grace and I understand the depravity, all of a sudden the cross of Christ is, is huge and it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and keeps blowing my mind. And so there are Christians that say, why you got to talk about sin all the time, man? Like we get it. We're broken. 
Jesus says, hey, you want to be a part of my, ki- my kingdom? You have to mourn this broken, sinful condition in which you find yourself. And not only you, the sins of the world. This should bother us on a regular basis. And it should give us a longing for something that is to come that we have not received yet on this earth. So he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? There's a privilege that comes along with being with mourning, it's being comforted. And it's being comforted right now in the fact that you know what Jesus did took the penalty for your sin, didn't it? I mean, you realize that you were poor in spirit and you're broken before that. And God comes and says, I love you and you're my child. And when I look at you, I see Jesus and, and, and you can have an identity. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing privilege that we receive right now on this earth to know that. And it gives us hope. But this is not just about right now. It's about an eternal perspective. Because when we see evil and injustice in the world, it gives us something to hope toward, doesn't it? A new heavens and a new earth. So this blessing is both present and its future. Because we're comforted now and we will be comforted in the future inside of God's kingdom. But this is another characteristic that needs to be evident in the life of a believer of Jesus. The third beatitude. Uh, Blessed are those who are, uh, who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So uh, it's no coincidence that a person who's acknowledged their need for God, right, been poor of spirit, and who has mourned the sinful state of mankind, that would naturally produce a character of meekness in the life of a follower of Jesus. What is meekness? Gentleness, humbleness, considerate, sensitive, and patient. There should be no arrogant disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? When you truly see your standing before God and what He did for you, you don't think to exalt yourself before your fellow man and before one another. And one sign of a meek person, a meek follower of Jesus Christ, and I've experienced this in in, in the church over the years, and I've seen it good and bad, one sign of meekness is someone who will allow you to speak truth into their lives, right? They'll listen when you try to, when you try to, to speak truth. It's one thing to acknowledge your own sin, right? But it's another thing to allow that sin to then lead you to a place of meekness where you're receptive to allowing other people to speak into your, to speak into, into your life. And it's interesting here. So when it says the, says the meek, blessed are the meek for they shall, inha- blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So this is our, our privilege. Um, I'm just going to put earth. This is, this is kind of funny because it's not the way that we think, is it? This is kind of an upside, thi- upside down thinking in an upside down world. Uh, it's no coincidence that a person who's in, um, it's interesting that the meek uh, get the earth because we would think that the earth is for those who earn it, wouldn't we? I mean, it's like you work hard your whole life and you inherit the earth. You inherit this material thing. Uh, you got to be tough or you'll be walked all over. Isn't that the opposite of being meek in the way that we think? Here's the interesting thing. Possession is not found in power or in influence in the kingdom of God. It's, it's found in, in knowing him. And receiving only what he can give, which is a, a free gift. And when you are meek, you will receive the earth. But it's a new heavens and a new earth. 
It's about being in in God's kingdom. It's about not living for power and possessions today. It's about what comes after this life. So meekness is another characteristic of what it means to live inside of Jesus' kingdom. The fourth beatitude is, um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So in the Bible, uh, there's, there's a couple of different types of righteousness that's, that's described. When we look at the references and where it's used, and they, they break down into three categories. There's legal righteousness, moral righteousness, and social righteousness. So legal righteousness in the Bible is justification or, or a right relationship with God. It's what Jesus did for us, making us right in our standing before God. Okay, the whole spiritual bankrupt thing. Moral righteousness is character and conduct that pleases God or, or right living. And, uh, but righteousness is not just about our relationship with God. Righteousness in the Bible is also a social affair because there are things that are right in this world and there are things that are wrong. Christians should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yes, in our relationship with God. Yes, in the way that we live. But we should also hunger and thirst for man's liberation against sinful oppression, right? We should hunger and thirst for those things that are right in this world and for those things that are hunger and thirst for uh, righteousness. Did I spell that right? Righteousness? Oh, too many T's. Sorry, guys. Uh, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness in, in our relationship with God, but also for, for oppression. A, a huge part of God's kingdom involves civil rights. What is, what is right? It involves justice, the, the taking things that are unjust and making them right. Uh, it involves integrity inside of business and the way that we live our lives. And it involves having honor in our home. This is why it's okay for the Christian community to be involved in public affairs because we are advocating for the king's agenda in this world and we're pushing for his ways. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is how many times have we turned an eye to unjust morality in our culture and then kind of chalked it up to being culturally relevant, right? We should mourn for what is broken in this world. We should hunger and thirst for those things to be made right in this world. Not to be passive and to sit by, not to do anything. And yes, we will inherit the kingdom of God. We, we will be satisfied. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're satisfied. We will be satisfied in heaven, won't we? When, when true righteousness is experienced, when we're with God, and we're basking in His glory, there will be satisfaction. But on this earth, there should be a constant state of, uns- of not being satisfied with the way things are. Jesus said, hey, if you drink of this cup, you will forever be satisfied. That's true if you can always drink from the cup. That's true when we're basking with him in heaven. But right now on this earth, the way that we live, Jesus' followers should hunger and thirst for those things that are right and to pursue those things that are right with our time and with our energy and with, with our efforts. So now in the Beatitudes, we begin to see a shift uh, between the the characteristics of what it means to be in a relationship with God uh, to now our attitude with our fellow man. And you can see how this one has some overlap between the two. It has to do with God, and it has to also do uh, with man. 
So the, the fifth beatitude here, blessed are the merciful, uh, for they shall receive mercy. Now, let's be honest. Historically, uh, the church, we've not always had a really good reputation for being uh, merciful, have we? There's been definitely some big seasons of selfishness uh, that have happened in the church uh, through uh, um, pushing people out. Yet throughout time, uh, God's continued to display mercy, hasn't he? You can't look at the life of Jesus and not see a merciful king who loves people and who goes to great lengths to bring them into his kingdom. You can't read the story of God throughout the Old Testament and not see God's mercy. Now, in God's kingdom, mercy is a characteristic of, of, of a follower of Christ, and mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Okay? That's how God, that's how God views mercy, getting, getting what, what, uh, what you don't deserve. We think that mercy is helping someone who deserves justice. Oh, that poor person, they were wronged, so I'm going to extend mercy to them. Right? But if they deserved it, there's no mercy. And that's just the way that we live our lives. Let's, let's, let's be honest. That's our, our, understa- our understanding of what mercy is in, inside of our kingdom that we've built. And God's understanding of what mercy is does not line up. And we are only going to be able to extend true mercy to each other when we've experienced true mercy. I mean, when, when you do... <laughs> When you do realize your, your, your bankruptcy and how much God bailed you out, all of a sudden that now gives you a standard for mercy. And you extend mercy to those who don't deserve it. And your whole agenda changes. That's what it means to be a part of God's, God's kingdom. When we look upon the, the weight of sin and the, and the greatness of grace, man, all of a sudden my perspective of what it means to be merciful changed and and what what do we what's the privilege that comes along with this if you're not willing to extend mercy the way that jesus defines mercy then then your privilege is if you can then then there's there's mercy extended to you right but the same is true if you can't extend mercy then none will be extended to you because it's a sign that your heart's never been changed. And that's ultimately what God cares about is his people's hearts. And this naturally leads to the next one, which talks about our hearts. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I could have written smaller here, that would have been helpful. So Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is always interested in the hearts of his people, not just their outward actions. God, from the very beginning, he's made it really clear to us in his word that he wants our hearts, not just our actions. Jesus repeatedly, throughout the gospel, is going to condemn religious people for two-faced living. So what is that? What is pure of heart then? Well, the Psalms 24.4 says it like this, and he's talking about who can stand before God. The psalmist says, He who has, a clean, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So to be pure in heart is to be sincere in your relationships with one another. One of our first sessions that the guys did with relational elder training was talking about the difference between what we believe 
with our mouth and what we believe with our actions. And we, we talk about in this church that sanctification is the narrowing of the gap between my confessional faith of what I say I believe and my functional faith of what I actually believe with my actions. And so this is a work that God is doing inside of us to make us pure in heart. And the benefit of being pure in heart is we will get to, to see God, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty, pretty awesome privilege that comes along with that. A follower of Jesus who, who lives honestly and openly in his and her relationships with God and with one another will get to see God. But a hypocrite will never see God, either in this life or in the next life, face to face. So we need to continue to have God come and work in our heart, to line up our heart to his ways so that we can see him. And like I'm saying, church, this is not a works thing. Jesus made that really clear by starting out in the pure pure of spirit. We're supposed to read this and say, oh crap, like there's some work to be done, isn't there? I mean, it was so hard for me to teach, to study to this. Like, who are you to stand up there and to tell everybody this stuff? Because there's some big areas in your life that need to be worked on. But I have hope and I say, okay, God, there's some reprioritizing that needs to happen in my life. There's some heart work that needs to be done and I need you to come in here and do it. That's that ongoing work of sanctification that Jesus is, is doing. So then the next one, blessed are the peacemakers. We have two more. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Once again, and how these things build on one another, it's no coincidence that peacemaking follows being pure of heart. How much conflict happens in our relationships over impure motives, while open, honest living leads to reconciliation. Inside of our relationships with the church, inside of marriage, when we try to hide things, uh, it, 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 creates, it creates conflict. Followers of Christ are meant to be peacemakers, just as Jesus was a peacemaker. Uh, we were once at conflict with God, but he came to us and he preached peace to those who were far off. And he made us, remember when we went through Ephesians, he made us fellow citizens with him. God didn't just bring peace to us and then call us his ugly stepchild. God made peace with us and brought us in and made us fellow citizens with him inside of his kingdom. We became members of the household of God, saints even. We became a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That was Ephesians 2. So we are, are not meant, and we are, we are meant to take that message of, of peace here as a characteristic. We should have, oh Lord, we should have peace in our life. And we're then to take up the, that ministry, the peace that's been given to us, and that becomes the model in how we interact in our relationships with one another inside of the church, inside of the community. And because of that, we not only will get to see God, but we will get to bear the title of the Son of God which is pretty sweet, isn't it? Man, talk about being brought into the family. That's because we're, we're peacemakers. We take up his ministry of reconciliation. Uh, just a quick story. This week I met with a pastor in St. John's, uh, and I was at a, we have a monthly gathering where we all get together and talk about collaborative work efforts that we're doing. And, uh, and then we just kind of give some, some, get some, some updates. And uh, Andy Goble at the St. John's Covenant Church, it's a yellow church on PDX Parkway, right near the Six Points, uh, Andy's getting kicked out of his building uh, because of some conflicts that he's had with the denomination, uh, the covenant denomination that he's a part of. And, uh, and Andy has a pretty good argument. He has a pretty good fight if he wants it. 
Like, it's all over their building. They're fighting over who actually owns that building. And he could get a lawyer, and he could go at the denomination, and he could win that building. And he could fight, and he could inherit a possession. But it would be ugly, and it would not be being a peacemaker. And it would create the division inside of his denomination. And so you know what Andy's doing? He, him and his church are saying, hey, we don't need a building. You want a building? You can have it. I'm going to be a peacemaker because that's what I see modeled in the gospel. And while his denomination is choosing to, to fight, he's choosing to extend peace. And so this week, I think it was their last Sunday uh, that they're in that building and they're going to move over to the, the Methodist Church, uh, the United Methodist Church on Lombard right near the AutoZone. And they're going to be sharing that auditorium with another church. But because Andy, re- and we were talking, we, had, we met for lunch, and we were talking, he was like, God wants me to be a peacemaker. What do I care? What do I care about these things of the earth for? I'm going to give them up. And isn't that what we fight over? These things that aren't eternal all the time that don't really matter in God's kingdom? It's because he's experienced the peace of God and he can let go of things. And because of that, man, to now be called a, the son of God is an, is an amazing privilege. So like I said, we take up the ministry of being ambassadors, of extending peace. I know this may be an obvious statement, but the essence of being a peacemaker is that peace has to be made, doesn't it? Resolving conflict in our relationships is incredibly difficult inside of this church, inside of your work, inside of your family. And being a peacemaker is going to come at a great cost to you. It's going to come at a great sacrifice, but it's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. It came to a great, it came at a great sacrifice to God too, didn't it? And we're to take up that same ministry. So then the last one, as it transitions, and this is verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your, your reward is great in heaven. Uh, for so they, they persecuted the prophets who were, who were, uh, who were before you. So I'm going to move this one back up here. So characteristic, persecution. That should be a, a part of, of, of our daily lives. And, and I think this is the one that's probably the, the weirdest for us. Because we look at our life and we're like, persecution? Wait, no. The point of life is, is comfort, right? The point of life is safety and security. But Jesus says you're, you're happy when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Remember? For, the, for uh, hunger and thirsting for, for righteousness. When we hunger and thirst for those that are right, I guarantee you, church, you and I are going to face persecution. Once again, it's no coincidence, persecution follows peacemaking. When we try to be peacemakers, when we try to extend righteousness to the world, there's going to be conflict created. And the reason that persecution is going to come is because many times peace will not be made. And it's not supposed to be made, especially when we're standing up for righteousness. Jesus says, don't be surprised when you're persecuted for my sake. The opposite is also true, church. You should be surprised when you're not persecuted. That should be a sign that maybe my priorities need to change and I do need to pick up the cause of Christ. As we take up the words of God, as we sit under His authority, we take up His words and we take up God's standards, I guarantee you we will not be embraced by this world. 
we will be hated for the cause of Christ. So don't be surprised when hostility comes in your workplace or your neighborhood or in the public arena. Don't be surprised when at some point this building tries to get taken away from us as a church. Because we are going to continue to sit under the authority of God. And that authority is not going to wind up with the foolishness of the way the world thinks. And persecution will come and should come. And Jesus says, just as the prophets were persecuted, so will you be persecuted. Those guys had it bad, right? I mean, look at the, the, the prophets. You're like, really, God? Can you, can you not compare me to somebody else? Like, I'm going to be persecuted like the prophets? You know, you read like Ephesians 11, and they were, they hid in caves, and they were sawed in two, and they were dipped in tar, and their families were killed. I mean, right? They, they were the ones who, who, who were, uh, I can't remember the phrase that it, that it talks about. It's called the, the others in, in Hebrews 11, and, it, and it's brutal. And Jesus says, hey, it's, it's going to get bad. But the privilege, right, is just like at the very beginning. It's the same. It's the kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love what he says there. He says, so, so rejoice when persecution comes. What do we have to lose, right? What is there at stake here when you have the, when you have the kingdom to inherit? So what are you afraid of for losing for the sake of Christ? Your reputation? Your money? I mean, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Like, he has resources. He can do whatever he wants. You know, we, just, we are just to, to be obedient and follow him, and whatever comes is what God wants to come. So let's give up these things that we're holding so tightly, and let's inherit the earth, right? So we look at this list once again, and we see all these characteristics, and, and we see these probably glaring areas of our life that, that just don't line up with God and his kingdom. What do we do? Like, what's our response to that? Do I just go home and say, oh, man, I'm like a crappy Christian, you know? No, we look to the cross, man. When we come and take communion in a minute, we, we look at, at Jesus and we remember the story. If, you, if you're discouraged or disheartened in any way from this message, we come before God and, and we see Jesus who humbled himself, right? Humbled himself to the point of death, taking on, he mourned, over, over our broken relationship, right? He was meek in the way that he lived and those he interacted with. He wasn't out for power in this world because his kingdom lies someplace else. Man, he pursued righteousness. He displayed righteousness. Was he merciful? Oh, man, was he ever. Did he give mercy to us? Was he pure of heart in his relationships and his dealings with one another? Was he a peacemaker? Was he persecuted? Yeah, to the point of death. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus fulfills all of these things so that we can inherit the kingdom. And then he places these characteristics on us, not deserving them. But then the story doesn't stop there. God raises Jesus Christ from the dead. He exalts him to the highest place. He exalts him. He gives him all authority on heaven and earth. Above every kingdom and every name, he gives them all authority. And then what does God do in Ephesians 2? He takes Jesus and he places them under the feet of the church to be the foundation in which we stand. And he says, you are the fullness. You, us in this room, 
Paul says in Ephesians, because of what Jesus did, we are now the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. He being the head, we being the body, and we advance forward in the mission. And we find a whole new identity. And then we begin to see ourselves like that. We realize what Jesus did and we say, okay, let's go, God. And we start examining our lives. And we repent and we mourn. And we allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of us and dwell us and to make us more like Jesus. You as a follower of Christ will spend your entire life doing this. It's an amazing, beautiful, incredibly difficult at times journey. But know that you journey with God and that He is doing these things inside of you. So have hope. Come in home community this week. Let's talk about these areas of our lives. Let's find different areas and let's repent Let's remember what God's word said in faith. And then let's move forward in obedience. And I believe it can be uh, an amazing work of what God can continue to do here in and through us as his people. So let's, uh, let's pray together. And then we're going to have our worship leaders come back up and, and lead us in some more songs. And we're going to come to these tables and we're going to repent. And then we're going to clothe ourselves with Jesus. And we're going to go back out and continue to be obedient. Uh, Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Uh, something that did seem like foolishness to us, all of a sudden it starts to click, God, and, and we start to see what your kingdom is all about. And, uh, and our eyes are awakened to the fact that we do live in an upside-down world. And not only that, we've been thinking in an upside-down way. And so, God, I believe that through Jesus Christ, you can take what's upside-down and you can make it right-side-up. God, I truly believe that you can change the way that we think and you can change our heart. You said you would do that. You said, Father, that you would transform the way that we think and we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So God, we just ask that you continue to do this inside of us, Father, that as we behold Jesus and we look on his grace and we see how he fulfilled all of these beatitudes and how we really struggle with fulfilling any of them, Father, and we experience your grace, will we then go out and extend that grace? back to a world that desperately needs it and needs to know you as their Savior. So Father, I pray that you would do that inside of this church. Pray that you would continue to do it because I know that you already are. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.